Today we're going to speak on the Feast of the Lord, the last feast of the cyclical year, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. And about uh, a month and a half ago, I had uh, Sergio and Yossi stand up and they told us a little bit about that feast. And uh, uh, it's, it's a wonderful feast. It's a celebration of the Lord. And today we're going to discover kind of the riches and the mysteries of that. But to start out, I'd like to uh, remind you that in 1968, some of you may remember this, the uh, rock group, The Band, came on the music scene and they had a song. Their first hit single was known as The Wait, and it started out with these particular lyrics. I pulled into Nazareth. I was feeling about half past dead. I need, I just need some place where I can lay my head. Hey, mister, can you tell me where a man might find a bed? He just grinned and shook my hand and no, was all he said. The parallels between the person in this song and Jesus are convincingly clear, and I have to feel that they probably went to the Bible to get the, the concept of what happened here. Jesus was not given a much better reception in his own hometown of Nazareth, and he said to us in the book of Luke, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When we leave our home, we have two choices concerning our move. We can either establish a new residence and we can dig in, or we can pitch a temporary dwelling and we can wait for another move. And the Bible speaks about its heroes in the second way. Those who are recorded as faithful in the Bible are those who pitch their tents and always expect to make another move as they live at their life. They live it contently and they live it without fear as they rely totally on the staff and the rod of their shepherd to tend to them. And when somebody calls me or emails me and they say, you know, I have a personal problem and I'd like a little advice on it, I will often quote them a portion of the first psalm that I read today, the 42nd Psalm. And these are the words that I read you earlier. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with the multitude that keep a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. The feasts of the Lord are pilgrim feasts because they are, they are held for people that are looking for a better home. And they're looking for a home with foundations and a home that can't be shaken. And so during these feasts, the people reside in temporary shelters to acknowledge this fact. And they also read the Songs of Ascents, one of them which I just read you, which go from the 120th Psalm to the 134th Psalm. These are known as pilgrims' songs because they reminded the people of their journey from a distant land, possibly, all the way to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And the songs are recorded showing outside of the borders of Israel and then getting into the borders of Israel and moving towards Jerusalem and then getting to the uh, walls of Jerusalem and then moving through those walls and into the area around Jerusalem and then eventually the people move to the temple where the center of the Psalms focuses on the most holy place of God's sanctuary and so you're moving from a lower place to a higher place you're ascending and they're known as the Psalms of Ascents. The Feast of Tabernacles is the finishing touch of these great feasts where they would read these Psalms and rejoice in the presence of the Lord and it points to a tent which surpasses all others in both beauty and in majesty. So here's our text verse for today. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. 
God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Point number one today is a place to stay. Hebrews 11, if you've ever read that, it's the great hall of faith in the Bible. It tells us about the faithful who lived all the way since the very creation of the world. We uh, start with Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Sarah and others. And it says this about them. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And after this, it continues on for 20 plus verses talking about these and many other people who lived by faith as they walked along life's highway. And they were great people, according to the Bible, who understood the transitory nature of the world in which we live. And I want to tell you about the first surfboard that I ever owned. It came from a guy who lived right down the road from us. His name was Mr. Miller. And he lived in that house as long as I could remember. It was right next to Mandalay Point Road as you're going back this way. You'll see it on the right-hand side heading north. He lived in the house right next to Mandalay Point Road, and that is where we had our bus stop. And every day we'd go to the bus stop. And we never worried much about missing the bus back then. And the reason why is because at the time, Midnight Pass was a real small little two-lane road. And the only large trucks that ever went down Midnight Pass were either the garbage truck or they were the school bus. And the school bus had to come all the way down here and he turned around right here. And the reason why is there was no, nowhere else for him to turn around as he went to get back and pick us up. And the driver's name was Mr. Asher. So, as I said, you've got the, the garbage truck going by, wonderful people, a guy named, we had, uh, took our garbage every week named Leo, and we still see him around town once in a while. He's now a garbage driver, what, 40 years later. But uh, Mr. Asher, when he went by, we knew that we had about five minutes for him to turn around and come back. And he was a wonderful, wonderful man. He called us, do you remember what he used to call us? His little darlings and his little angels. That's right. He was a wonderful man. And... He, he was a blessing to us, and he made each one of us, teeny little children, getting on this bus feel so special. And just so you know, in Hebrew, the word Asher means happy or blessed, and he just fulfilled that perfectly. He was just a wonderful person. But anyway, he would come back, and he'd stop right by Mr. Miller's house, and we get on, and we go. And as we passed by Mr. Miller's house... You know, I don't think any of us ever met the guy, and we certainly never said hi to him. If we did, he was just an old guy that lived in a house. But when I turned 11 years old, a surf shop moved onto the quay, right at the mall, right next to 7-Eleven here. You'll see a big, long, yellow mall, and there was a surf shop there. And our lives suddenly became absorbed with skateboarding and with waiting on the day when we could own our very first surfboard. It was just so exciting, lying in bed, thinking about having a surfboard. My oldest brother got his, and he started going out surfing, and we were just just waiting for the day we could afford our own. And one day, as I was walking by Mr. Miller's house, I looked in, and there on the wall of his garage was this giant, ancient surfboard, probably from the 50s. It was beautiful. And I thought, you know what? I really want to see if this guy wants to sell this. And I was about as scared as I had ever been in my life, but I walked up there the next time I saw him working in his garage, and I said, sir, would you like to sell that board? And he says, I'll sell it to you for $25. 
So I saved up my money and I went and I bought it and I remember carrying this giant thing home and if the wind blew, it would turn me around like a sail, it was so big. But I was so excited to have this surfboard. And then a couple years later, Mr. Miller either died or he moved on. I don't know what happened to the guy. I bet you my dad does, but I'm not really sure what happened to Mr. Miller. But within 10 to 15 years of Mr. Miller moving out of that house, his house had been torn down and rebuilt at least three times. And I have never forgotten that. One person after another wanted to have a big million dollar home on Siesta Key and each person had to have one bigger and better than the guy before. And the whole time that this was happening, we lived in a 1920s era. Compared to today's standard, it was a shack. It was made out of pecky cypress. It was just an old house. But I bet you that that life that we lived in that house and the memories that we have are 1,000 times better than anything that ever went in, on in the lives of the people that were so unhappy as to tear down one house and to build another house on Mr. Miller's old property. And the reason why I bring that up is because wherever you are and whatever you do as you're moving along life's highway, it is a temporary station or it is a temporary treasure. And we can't hold on to these things. We, we can pretend that we've arrived and that where we are today is where we are always going to be. But that kind of short-sightedness brings us into tension with God. And the reason for this is that we live in a fallen state, in a fallen world. And if we try to hold on too tightly to those things, then what we are doing is telling God that we are happy with the way things are, even though they are not the way that he would intend for them to be in our lives. And speaking of the faithful who are recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, at the end of the chapter it says these words, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So the saints of the ages have been recorded in God's hall of faith. As they passed away, they were replaced by others who took their place and they waited patiently on that better thing which God promised since the very foundation of the world. And that brings us to point number two today, the Feast of Tabernacles, that better thing. In Hebrew, a sukkah is a temporary shelter or a booth. And the first time that it is mentioned in the Bible is all the way back in Genesis chapter 33. It says, And Jacob journeyed to Sukkot, built himself a house, and made a booth for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. Sukkot just being a plural of sukkah. Another time the use of sukkah is mentioned is in the book of Jonah. If you remembered a, about a month and a half ago, we did a study on the book of Jonah. And after he preached to the Ninevites, it says that he built a, a booth or a tabernacle. And he sat in it waiting to see what would happen to the city that he preached doom and warning to. But the sukkah is far more than just a temporary shelter for animals or for prophets. It is also the central theme of the last great celebration of the cyclical feast in Israel. The Feast of Tabernacles is the last mandated feast in Leviticus chapter 23, and it occurs in the fall of the year. And right now in Israel, 
Sergio here. He's probably missing the fun. There he is. He's over here. He's here in America with us. He's from Israel, and he's probably remembering what it was like having the Feast of Tabernacles over there and how they had it as a celebration, even to this day. Right now, it's going on from 12 October to 19 October, so we're just coming to the end of this particular feast in Israel. Here's how it's recorded in the Bible. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles. For seven days you are... Uh, for seven days to the Lord on the first day there shall be a holy convocation that means just a ceremony where they get together and they prepare for this great feast and this celebration you shall do no customary work on that day for seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord it is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it these are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burn offering and a great offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, besides all your free offerings, which you give to the Lord. And on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest and on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day of the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that you... Your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God says that it was to be a feast and a reminder to the children of Israel that they dwelt in booths or in tabernacles when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. But just as with all of the other Leviticus 23 feasts, as you've already seen on several of them, there is much more involved in this feast than just the celebration of a past event. There was also a future fulfillment waiting that would be fulfilled and realized in the person of Jesus Christ. And this goes not only to his first advent, unlike the other feast, this advent stretches all the way out into the ages, even until eternity. But before we go on, let me give you a few times that this feast was mentioned, three particular times in the Old Testament and how the people celebrated during those three times that it's mentioned. First from Deuteronomy 31. And Mo Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the time of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Now I want to stop there. I want to tell you that he mandated every seventh year that they, during the Feast of Tabernacles, that the law would be read to the people of Israel. And that is the only time that the law was mandated to be read to the people in the whole Old Testament. The king was supposed to read it every day of his life, but the people heard the law once every seven years. And I have to tell you personally that I cannot go without reading the Bible for a single day without being feeling dry. So these people really lived by faith in their priests to minister to them properly, because if they didn't, then they were totally at the... the, uh, the 
bondage of the priests if the priests didn't handle God's word properly. It says, gather all the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you crossed the Jordan to possess. Once every seven years, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they'd gather together and they would listen to the law of Moses being read to them. In 1 Kings 8, 22, and then further down in verses 65 and 66, it says this, Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is also known as the month of Tishri, just so you know, which is the seventh month. At that time, Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath, to the brook of Egypt. That means from the very north to the very south. It's like saying from Maine to Florida. From the brook of Hamath, from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. Before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days, 14 days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for his people Israel. It was such a time of joy when they had established the temple in Jerusalem that in fact they had 14 days of celebration. They extended it seven extra days. And then we read in the book of Nehemiah about the third time that it's specifically mentioned in the Old Testament. Now on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, bring branches of trees, myrtle branches, palm branches and bring branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in the courtyards of the courts of the house of God, and in the open square of the water gate, and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son, son of Nun, until the great day of the children of Israel, they had not done so. And there was very great gladness. So you can see the people have been exiled out of the land of Israel. They come back, they read the law in the presence of the Lord, and they find out that they're supposed to be celebrating this feast that was mandated in Leviticus. And so they rejoice, and they go out, and they gather all of these things, and they celebrate it with great gladness. The Feast of Booths there was a time for the people to have great gladness, and you can just imagine that the people are building their booths, just like today in Israel. And it's like our Christmas celebration in America where dad brings home the tree and then we got a box full of ornaments and maybe the star and the children are handing them to dad and put this one. No, daddy, don't put, the, you know, it's just was an exciting time and put this one up on the on the top and, and no, dad, you're putting the lights on wrong. And this is kind of what is going on in the Feast of Booths. The children are out gathering the branches and dad's building this booth. And if he was a good builder, they had a nice place to live for eight days. And if he wasn't, it might fall in on him. But everybody was having fun doing this. And I can just imagine the children saying, put this one on the very top, Dad, and put these willows by the door. And just a real great time of celebration. And it is all picturing something even greater than what they were doing in, in these, uh, these celebrations, looking forward to what was coming. And one more thing, in Exodus 23, we learn just a little bit more about this particular feast. This feast is a part of the larger celebration known as the Feast of In-Gathering. It says, three times you shall 
keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labor, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God. Now, many modern Jews will refer to the regathering of the Jewish people back to Israel as the feast of ingathering mentioned here. And for them, this may be true in a limited sense, but it is not the fulfillment of the term ingathering as it's recorded in the Bible. Rather, the Bible says at the end of the year when you have gathered in the fruits of your labors. So this then looks forward not to an earthly return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, but the gathering in of God's people from their labors to the heavenly Jerusalem, the place where the redeemed of the ages are going to meet, be brought together, and it is the fulfillment of God's harvest of the saved people of the world. But before that could occur, something else had to happen first. In order to be redeemed, there must be a redeemer. In order for there to be people as part of the labor, there must be laborers. And that implies someone who would commission them. And in order for those people to understand their task, they would need to understand the work of the master. And although the prophets before the time of Jesus spoke the word of the Lord, what they spoke was often very veiled. It was in hard to understand terms or maybe kind of distant to them. And there was nothing tangible for the people to model or to emulate. And thus there was the need for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. As S.D. Gordon says it, Jesus is God spelling himself out in a language that men can understand. And as the Apostle John says it in his first epistle, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And in John, the book of John, his first chapter in the 14th verse, he clarifies what he was saying in his epistle. He says, And the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word for flesh there, the word became flesh, is the Greek word sarx, and it literally means the body of a man. But there's a second word that we need to look at more carefully. Many translations will translate it dwelt. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But I chose Young's literal translation for today's verse because he cites it properly. It says, the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us. When John wrote this, he was clearly identifying Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. In the Old Testament, when people were told to dwell in booths, the term is besuka, be being in, and sukkah is the booth. So the same term, when translated into the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the word enskeneus. And this is the same word used by John in his translation when he said, the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us. He said, 
eskenesen. Both of them are a different form of the same word, which is skenao. The word skenao means to fix one's tabernacle, to have one's tabernacle, or to abide in a tabernacle. And then defining that more, a tabernacle implies a, co a thicket, a covert, a booth, or a rude, temporary shelter. And the writer of Hebrews figured this out as well. He knew what was being alluded to by John in this particular verse. He said, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through the death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Here he says that Jesus partook of flesh and blood. God robed himself in a temporary shelter, a sukkah, and he dwelt among us. Jesus refers to himself as the tabernacle which would provide everlasting life to anyone who would simply accept the offering of a drink of water. In the New Testament, we have one more time that the Feast of Tabernacles is specifically mentioned. It's in the book of John, chapter 7. It says here, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And going down a few verses, it says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And Isaiah saw this, this coming, and he prophesied the words of anticipation 700 years before the coming Christ when he said these words, Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy and drink wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus put on a sukkah, a tabernacle, and we need to remember that these are temporary dwellings. So in order for the Spirit to come, Jesus, Sukkah, had to go through the ordeal of the cross and of the tomb. And when he bore this burden, he was glorified, and the Spirit was then offered freely to anyone who would simply receive it by faith in Jesus' work. Now the water of life is available to anybody through Jesus Christ in Revelation. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take freely of the water of life. And that brings us to point number three today, the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now, this is not specifically a part of the Feast of Tabernacles. The tabernacle in the wilderness, however, which later became the temple in Jerusalem, is a picture of Jesus Christ, and I will tie it in together with the feast. It's a study, this particular tabernacle, that could fill volumes and volumes and volumes of information. But despite it being called a mishkan in the Old Testament instead of a sukkah, the Greek translation calls the tabernacle a skene which is a variant of the same word skenao used in the Feast of Tabernacles. The tabernacle itself and every single part about it is a picture of either Jesus himself or his work. For example, it had a single entrance. There was one way to get into the tabernacle and one way to get into the temple. And that is clearly identifying that there is one way to get to God. There's not a mountain with many paths leading up to God. There's one way and it is through Jesus Christ. He said as much in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. There's one way to God. And then as soon as you walk through that one way, this one door, right there, the first thing you see is an altar of sacrifice. And that is telling us that not only is there one way to God, but it is through a sacrifice that you can do that. And that sacrifice is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at Calvary. The book of Hebrews, as we looked at two weeks ago at Yom Kippur, shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. Then after you get through the sacrifice of Jesus, you come to what's called a laver. It's a bowl that's filled with water. Here's how it's explained in the book of Exodus chapter 20. For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord. They shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and to his descendants throughout their generations. Now this labor signifies the purification of cleansing of Christ through sanctification. Now that's a big word and if you haven't heard that before, when you come to Jesus Christ and you say, I cannot save myself, I want God to pardon my sins through Jesus Christ, that is called justification. You are declared not guilty because of what he has done. Sanctification though is what happens as we grow and mature in Christ and we stumble and we fall and we need to confess our sins and say, Lord, I am sorry for what I've done. And he purifies us and he cleanses us and we become more and more like Christ as we are sanctified. This labor then symbolized this sanctification. And when Jesus washed the disciples' feet on the night of his cross, he used two separate terms for washing. Let me read it to you. He who is bathed, that's the first term, needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. He is saying that if you have come to me and you have been sanctified, or I'm sorry, justified through my sacrifice, you are completely clean. You are saved and that is an eternal salvation, but you need to wash your feet from time to time. The first term for bathe is from the Greek word luo, and it signifies the cleansing of our guilt from sin, justification. The exact same word is used in the book of Revelation in the first chapter and in the fifth verse where it says this, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Once you're cleansed by the blood of Christ, you can never lose your salvation again. This type of cleansing, as I said, is pictured by the altar at the beginning. You come to the sacrifice through Jesus Christ. But the second word for washing, washing of the feet was the word nipto and it signifies our ongoing cleansing as we stumble, as we fall. And this is similar to the laver right up here, where the priests who were already set aside for duty in the priesthood still had to wash themselves when they came in because they were already defiled, being outside the temple. They come into the temple and then they perform a sacrifice and they're covered with blood. They have to cleanse themselves again. And this is a picture of our own lives as we are living in Christ, stumbling and falling and washing ourselves. In both of these cases, though, it is very important to understand that the cleansing from guilt at the sacrifice here and the continuing sanctification at the labor here are both done by Christ. They are not anything we can do on our own. Christ provides both types of cleansing. And then after the labor, the next step in the tabernacle is what's called the holy place. So you've got this big tabernacle, it's shaped kind of like a rectangle and you come to the holy place. And in the holy place are three implements. There's a menorah, there's a table of showbread, and there's a golden altar of incense. 
Those three things are in the holy place. The menorah could fill volumes and volumes. It could fill 10 sermons and I would just be getting started. But suffice it to say today that Jesus is the light of the world and he is also the one that illuminates God to us. And that would be the symbolism of the menorah. And then we have the table of showbread, literally lechem panim, the bread of the faces. And this is a picture of Jesus as our manna and as our bread of life. Once again, that particular implement could fill volumes of information. But those two things will suffice it for today. And then finally, you have the golden altar of incense. And that represents Jesus as our mediator, our intercessor between God and man. There is no way that any sin-stained human being can have a relationship with God. It's not possible. And so he is our mediator, according to the Bible. He is our advocate. And he is the one through whom we present our prayers to God. Paul makes that abundantly clear in the New Testament that no prayer can be accepted by God if it does not come through the name of Jesus Christ. That is pictured in the Old Testament holy place. And then just after these three implements and just prior to the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is right in the middle here is the veil. And the veil once again is explicitly stated in the New Testament what its purpose and meaning is. It says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest or the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The veil which was torn the moment that he died on the cross is a picture of his body. When he died, having been torn for our sins, it says that God sovereignly tore that temple veil in half from top to bottom. I gave you that in a sermon some time ago. It was a handbreadth thick. It was 60 feet long. It was about 40 feet tall. No human could have done that. It was impossible. It is God who sovereignly tore that veil open, saying that access to God is now available through the body of my son, Jesus Christ. And no other path is acceptable to me except the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then finally, inside the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. And as I showed you two weeks ago on the Day of Atonement, the Ark and every aspect of it pictures the work of Jesus Christ. Along with those implements that I gave you today, every single thing used in the tabernacle, every tent peg, every single thing, pictures Jesus in some way or another. It is an amazing study. Every dimension given, every adornment prescribed, all of it prefigures the work of Jesus Christ. We could talk on that for months and not even scratch the surface of it. But from the time of the law of Moses, when that tabernacle was first erected until the coming of Jesus Christ, God tabernacled or he dwelt among the people of Israel. And then when Christ came, He was the fulfillment of all of this. All of this prefigured him. He was the fulfillment of it. And he is the true tent among the people of the world where we can now take refuge during our temporary pilgrimage here as we wait on our final home. And now we can go back and we can revisit a verse that I gave you a little while ago. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. As you can see now, Egypt 
is a picture of our life in sin before coming to Jesus Christ. And now we are the pilgrims that the Israelites pictured as they lived in these temporary tents, waiting on a final home. And all of this is given to us to demonstrate our need for Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer. And that brings us to point number four today, our final point, into the future. Of all of the feasts of the Lord, and we've talked about three of them in the past few weeks, we have the Sabbath, we have the Passover, we have first fruits, we have unleavened bread, Pentecost, uh, trumpets, atonement, and finally tabernacles. Only one feast is explicitly said in the Bible to be celebrated in the future, and that is the Feast of Tabernacles. Here's what it says from the book of Zechariah. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the book of Zechariah describes battles which are coming, and I believe they're in the very near future. And it describes a time when Israel, as a nation, is going to collectively call on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. And in addition to this, it describes the time after those things occur, during the millennial reign or the thousand-year reign of Christ, when he literally reigns here on earth. In this description, it says that the Feast of Tabernacles will be kept in Jerusalem. Why is it that no other feast is explicitly named in the Old Testament except this feast? The reason why is because they are fulfilled in Christ and they are set aside. But the Feast of Tabernacles, even though it's fulfilled in his temporary shelter, his temporary body, is representative of the fact that he again will be dwelling in Jerusalem in a human body. And so to acknowledge this, that the king of the universe is sitting in Jerusalem in a tabernacle, the people will come and they will celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles. At the end of the millennial reign of Christ, a new heavens and a new earth is going to be realized and God will permanently permanently dwell with the people of the world. It says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. This then is the ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. We shall be living eternally in the presence of God. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no more night there. They need no lamp nor light of sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. This then, this is what the world has waited for ever since the fall of Adam. All things will be renewed as the saints of the ages will receive their final reward. We will have eternal joy in the presence of God and the Lamb. And I can tell you with all confidence that our Lord Jesus Christ has done great things for us. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Come thou, all victorious Lord, thy power to make us known. Strike with the hammer of thy word and break these hearts of stone. Oh, that we all might now begin our foolishness 
to mourn and turn at once from every sin and to our Savior turn. Give us ourselves and thee to know in this our gracious day, repentance unto life bestow and take our sins away. Conclude us first in unbelief and freely then release. Fill every soul with sacred grief and then with sacred peace. Impoverish, Lord, and then relieve and then enrich the poor. The knowledge of our sickness, give the knowledge of our cure. That blessed sense of guilt impart and then remove the load, trouble, and wash the troubled heart in the atoning blood. Our desperate state through sin declare and speak our sins forgiven. By perfect holiness, prepare and take us up to heaven. I'd like to tell you all before we close today that the Bible says that there is none righteous on the face of the earth. No, not one. And it says that all of us, every single one of us has sinned and we have all come short of the glory of God. But the Bible says that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we are still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. He fulfilled every one of these types and pictures and he made the absolute claim that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And the Bible makes it very easy for us to be reconciled to God. It says, for all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And it goes on to say in John 3:16 that God so loved the world, and that means the people of the world, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Heavenly Father, if there's any heart here today that has never called on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and acknowledged that he is the one and only way to heaven, may they make that vow and make that commitment today, understanding their great need for a Redeemer far greater than any of us. Lord God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for having come and tabernacled among us and dwelt with us so that we could understand your heart and to know you through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We love you, we praise you, in his name, amen.